please take your seats. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Over a number of these 7 p.m. services recently that I've been ministering at anyway, we've been focusing on the order of Melchizedek. How many of you know that we are a royal priesthood? The Levites was a priesthood under the law, uh, but they weren't royal, but we are a royal priesthood. And if you're interested, if you're new, you can go back on our website if you're interested in any of this and see some of the sermons on this. But I really began in Acts chapter 15, verse 13. I'm just going to recap a little bit, then move forward. Acts 15, 13, where Acts 15 is such an important chapter in the history of the early church because Acts 15 comes after the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, Peter had done that earlier, but only once. But when Paul began to preach to the Gentiles, and they all came in in their hundreds and then thousands, people were saying, hey, wait a second. If, if they're going to be Christians, they also have to be Jewish and be circumcised. And there was a big argument about this, and that's why they went up to Jerusalem to sort it out. And uh, Peter gave his testimony about how God cleansed the Gentiles' hearts by faith, and gave them the spirit, and Paul talked about all the great things God had done with them, and then James summed up by prophesying in Acts 15, 13, that this was a fulfillment of the restoration of the tent of David. Sometimes it says tabernacle, but the word is simple, tent of David. And we thought, well, what was the tent of David? And we looked at certain passages, 1 Chronicles 13 was where the tent of David is seen. And basically what happened was this. When David wanted, became king, the first thing he wanted to do was bring the ark to Jerusalem. It had been out there a long time. Nobody had touched it since it had made its own way on those cattle back from the Philistines. And David said, I'm king. First thing I want is God's presence in Jerusalem. And so he wanted to take the ark up to Jerusalem. And the first time... It failed because somebody put their hand to steady the ark and they weren't a Levitical priest and they died. And so David said, I can't handle this. I'm trying to bring God's presence into Jerusalem. But, but you know, somebody just tried to help and they got struck down. And David was angry and frustrated and bemused. So he said, just keep it there in that house. I don't want anything to do with it. And he went back to Jerusalem disappointed. But during that time the Holy Spirit spoke to him, Psalm 110. You say, why do you say the Holy Spirit? I mean, obviously it's God, but why the Holy Spirit? Well, when Jesus speaks of this moment in uh, Mark 12, verse 36, and we'll come to these, he says, David said, by the Holy Spirit. By. So, so David wanted to bring the ark back, but he couldn't. And he was so disappointed because... He really wanted to be a priest, a Levitical priest. Then he could, because before when he tried to bring the ark back the first time, they were singing and they were dancing and he was praising. And now he realized that 
if he touched the ark, or so he thought, he would die too. And he was like, this was, this was a man who was after God's heart. And he's thinking, I can't even touch your glory, Lord. I can't even worship your glory. Look what happened to someone who just tried to, to steady the ark. And so he went away disappointed. He wished he'd be brought, born a Levite, I believe. After all, he was a worship leader, wasn't he? Right from the beginning as a boy. And he was writing beautiful worship. You know, David brought a worship revolution to Israel. His, his worship was not liturgical and formal like the Levites, but his worship was prophetic and inspirational. You read the Psalms. It was the Holy Spirit working on him, and he brought a whole bunch of new worshippers, and yet he thought, if only I could be a priest. And so while he was dejected and disappointed that his first act as a king to honor God and bring the ark to Jerusalem did not work, Psalm 110 came to him, and we'll come to this psalm in a minute. I just need to give you a background. And in that psalm, it said, you are a priest. Not in the priest of, Le priest of Levi or the Levitical law, Moses' priesthood, but you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And all of a sudden, David realized that he was a priest, that God had two priestly orders, and, and the primary priestly order was Melchizedek. Now, just in case you've never heard, and it's possible, of Melchizedek that we've been talking about in the last few weeks, you would need to go to Genesis 14, 17. Genesis 14, 17. And there, I'm not going to go through it, but Genesis 14, 17, there is the story of the father of faith in whom we walk in his faith footsteps. Our father of faith, Abraham, and when he just defeated the kings and rescued Lot, before the king of Sodom could get to him and, and offer him a deal, this priest came out of Salem, Jerusalem, and he was Melchizedek. He wasn't just a priest, he was a king. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, a priest and a king. And he came out to Abraham, and what was he holding? Bread and bread and wine. And he brought, and he said, Abraham of God Most High, and he was the priest of God Most High. There were many priests at that time, many religions, but this was the authentic priest of God Most High. And he gave Abraham bread and wine, and Abraham tithed to him. And, and, and we find that this order, this Melchizedek, was before the law, and nothing to do with the law or the Levites. And Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, as we'll see. He was a priest. He's, of the, he's a lion of Judah, the house of Judah, not Levi. But Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews tells us. And that the Levitical priesthood, that was just temporary. The law was just a temporary measure until Jesus came. And the Levitical priests were just a temporary earthly measure until Jesus came. But when Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, he entered into the true holy of holies when he ascended into heaven. And made atonement for all who believe. And so Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. And when, when this, what we're about to read, when the Holy Spirit spoke this to David, he realized he was a priest. And that he could bring the ark in. And so he got the Levites. And he brought the ark back in. It's all there, 1 Chronicle 13. And they brought the ark. And there was two types of priests there was the Levites carrying the ark and 
But then there was another type of priest, only one of them, David. And David, the Bible says, was in his priestly ephod. And so you had the Levites in their priestly garment, but David, who wasn't a Levite, dressed up in a priestly garment. And he wasn't just carrying the ark. He was, he was dancing before the ark in charismatic, free, inspirational, Holy Ghost praise. And he was dancing and worshipping the Lord so freely and so powerfully that his own wife, Saul's daughter, she was offended about it. But he was praising. And what did he do? He, he, he wasn't allowed to build a temple and it wasn't for him to build a temple. But what did he do? He took the ark and he made a tent. Just four posts and a covering. And put the ark in there. And throughout David's reign, the ark was kept in the tent of David. It was so wonderful because everybody could come before the ark, see the ark, be in God's presence, worship before the ark. Didn't matter if you were just a Levite. And it was the ark of people from other countries could come to Jerusalem. And they did to meet with David. Gentiles. Gentile kings and emissaries and ambassadors could come to Jerusalem and they could see the ark under the tent of David. It was there for the whole world. How different when Solomon built the temple. Then the ark was locked away in the Holy of Holies and only one man could go in to see the ark one time, once a year. On the day of atonement and make atonement. No woman ever saw it from that time. No, no Gentile could see it. No non-Levites. And most of the Levites didn't. But when Jesus died on the cross, that veil was rent in two. And Jesus became the ark and was tabernacled among us. So we've been talking about this and doing various sermons on these themes. But let's now go to Psalm 110, having given you that reminder or background for those of you that are new. So here's David, and he's thinking, I wanted to bring the ark back, but God spoiled it all by killing somebody. We were having a party, a homecoming party, and God killed somebody who was only trying to help. How on earth can I ever bring this back, not being a Levite? And then... The Holy Spirit comes to him. And this is what happens. Psalm 110. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be willing or volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauty of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink by the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Now, this affirmed David 
as being in the order of Melchizedek. But we also know that this really and more powerfully was speaking prophetically, was speaking about David, and the Jews understood that it was speaking about David. But when Jesus came, he said, do you know what? That psalm was really speaking about me. It was speaking about David in a secondarily, secondary way. But primarily, Jesus said, this was speaking about me. Now, let's just look at that at Mark, at Mark 12, 36. That version will do. Mark 12, 36. Or verse 35. Mark 12, 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How then is he his son? And so Jesus is referring to that psalm and saying he's speaking about me. So it, it, this is speaking about David only in a secondary way because David is saying Yahweh, that's what the first Lord says. And in your Bibles, whenever you see it in the Old Testament where it's capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, whenever you see that in the Old Testament, it means that in the Hebrew the word is not Lord. It's Yahweh. It's Yahweh. And so Yahweh said to my Lord. So David is seeing Yahweh speaking to his Lord. And Jesus is saying, that was me. It's incredible, isn't it? And so we see that Jesus identifies himself with this psalm. And we're going to go back to this psalm prophetically and what it means for us today. But, but let's go to Hebrews 10. Now Hebrews again and again, says that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek and establishes that. But here, in Hebrews 10, well, let, let, yes, Hebrews 10, verse 9. Let's start from there. Hebrews 10, verse 9. And Jesus said, speaking, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. But that by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body, this is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, once and for all. And every priest, speaking about the Levites' priests here, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus... After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of, the, of God, and from that time, and I love this, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being set apart, not sanctified, set apart. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said that, said before, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, and I will put my precepts in their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. So here we have a picture of Psalm 110, 
and it's in fulfillment. At this time, when Hebrews was written, Jesus Christ had died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. And so after he had offered his life for the sins of the world, he sat down at the right hand of God, and that's where Jesus is right now. Do you know that? Seated at the right hand of the Father. And what's he doing? I love this. From that time, waiting. Waiting till his enemies has done his footstool. Now let me explain. This means that Jesus' work in one sense is done. He's offered the sacrifice and he's ascended into heaven. His work is done. And that's why he is seated. Whereas the Levitical priests at that time, the temple had not yet been destroyed since AD 70, they were continually working in the temple day and night and offering sacrifices. But Jesus' priestly ministry had been done. And it's like he sat down and now he's waiting. What's he waiting for? Well, let's go back to Psalm 110. And I, I love this. I love this. Yahweh, the Father, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Wow. What the Father is saying is, you've done it, son. You've done it. You've done all I've asked. Now you sit here and I... I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. And that was done by the sending of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know Jesus isn't just sit, sitting there doing nothing because we know Hebrews 7 says he lives evermore to make intercession for us. He's praying for us. But in one sense, he's waiting and his Father, by the Holy Spirit in the church, is going to make his enemies his footstool. Now, what does it mean, it footstool? Well, the word enemies and footstool, this is talking about the ancient practice of when you defeat an enemy or a king, that you would bring the king and you would throw them to your... They would, they would bow at your feet and you would put your feet on their head or their neck to show complete subjugation of your enemies. Often uh, in the Roman Empire, for example, when they defeated foreign kings or leaders of foreign tribes, they would bring them in in a great procession into Rome. And what would happen is you would have the conquering general or the conquering Caesar, and he would parade with his foot on the head of the king for everybody to see the utter and complete defeat of this enemy. We know that Joshua did this. When Joshua defeated um, the enemies, he brought them and he said, put your feet on their neck. In other words, he was saying, look how subjugated they are. So when we talk about making your enemies your footstool or where you place your foot, we're talking about the absolute, total and utter defeat of your enemies. Total and utter. And so this phrase... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool is one of the most quoted and referred to passage, passages in the whole of the New Testament. We've mentioned that Jesus has, has referred to this already uh, in his ministry. Um, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. 
Peter's preaching. And Acts chapter 2, verse 35. Of verse 34, of verse 30, let's go to 32. It's all, trouble is I, I get my, my verse and then everything's so good in front of it. Verse 32, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. This is prophetic fulfillment and explanation of what's going on. The Holy Spirit's being poured out. And then Peter says, verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up of which we're all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of, the, of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord, or Yahweh, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So what Peter is saying is, look, Jesus came to the, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the Father said, sit, be seated. And from that moment when he was seated, the Holy Spirit was poured out. Why? Because at that moment, God sent the Holy Spirit to begin the plan of action to make all of Christ's enemy his footstool. Now, you can see this in, I don't need to go to everything tonight, just to give you a feel of this. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, it talks about how Christ is seated in heavenly places, yes, above everything that is named and to be named, yeah, on earth and under the earth and above the earth. He is seated in heavenly places. That's referring to this passage, sit at my right hand. And isn't it amazing? Because he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, he's the high priest, we're priests too, aren't we? So we too are seated in him in heavenly places. All of this is great, and we preach about it and say, amen, I'm seated in Christ in heavenly places. This is all priestly language, and this is all referring back to Psalm 110. Colossians 2, verse 9 to 11, very famous passage that the Son was obedient to the Father and humbled himself even to death, and the Father raised him up and exalted him and gave him a name above every other name and that eventually every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, that, that every knee will bow, that's not talking about voluntary bowing. That's talking about this passage. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so, why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because this is what God is intending to do more and more with his end time people. He is intending to bring the history of his son and the church to a climax where we are going to see the enemies of Christ, both spiritual and natural, brought into submission, brought into submission. If you notice, how is God going to do this? Well, we see the Lord shall send, in verse 2, a rod of strength. In other words, authority is going to go forth 
in these days in increasing power. You only have as much authority as you have power. If you don't have power over somebody, you don't have authority over them. If you don't have power to drive out demons, you don't have authority over them. Remember the seven sons of Sceva? In the name of Jesus, whom Paul's preach, come out. And the little demons came out. But when they came across some bigger demons, the demon turned around and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And kicked them down the street. They didn't have authority because they didn't have power. But Jesus has said, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and trample on all the works of the enemy. There is authority. And God is wanting to increase and release increasingly authority in his word, in prayer, and in our lives. But in order to do this, we're going to have to get revived. Because he's not putting authority in, in proud people's hands. He's only going to put it in humble people's hands. And the church has got to get ready for an outpouring of God's authority. Because when revival hits, usually what happens is three things happen. When revival hits, all, all God breaks loose. But when revival also hits, all the devil breaks loose. And then all the flesh breaks loose. The flesh is never more exposed when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes. So I have to be careful not to put new believers into positions of spiritual power and authority too quickly. Why? Because they're not, they're not ready to handle that type of power. I think about revival and I think about God outpouring. And it, it, it scares me. I'm almost like, God, send revival, but not yet. Why? Because of the flesh that will manifest. And the thing is, when revival comes, flesh manifests that you didn't even know you had. You just have to look at the revivals. How very often the, the revival can come and flesh can kill it. And I'm talking about church flesh. And so what we need to do is we need to deal with the flesh so that we, be, we can become responsible. The most arrogant people I have ever come across cross consistently in my Christian life have always been Christian leaders. Always been, I, I have, I mean, I have met arrogant people in the world, but never as arrogant as Christian leaders. So you're one, yes. It's the greatest danger, especially when power starts manifesting and the crowd starts coming towards the power of the gospel and they begin to think it's them. And they begin to use their authority for their own ends, their own selfish needs, their own false doctrines. Because they can't carry that type of authority. And I'm thinking if revival hit Britain today, the church can't carry that type of authority. I'm telling you. I know it. I'm part of it. I grieve for it. And I grieve for myself. That that, what God wants to do, this sending the rod, the strength out of Zion, that we can't carry it. We'd ruin it within six months. We'd destroy it within six months. There'd be church splits, flesh, within six months. If God poured out his spirit on the British church, flesh would kill it. Flesh. We can't even handle the little that we have without fighting and arguing and posturing. 
You know it's true. I'm not saying I, I'm, as much, I'm as much part of the British church as anybody else. It grieves me. God's doing business in my heart, but we've got to get ready. We can't go on like it's going on. It's not okay. Things are not okay. You know, you could talk about grace all you like, but th there is a lack of power in the church today. And, the, and everybody wants the power, and everybody wants the revival, and everybody wants the breakthrough, but they're not fit to carry it. Ruin it, and it will ruin them. And it will ruin me. We, we need a work of God. And God, God's work on the inside is far more important than his work on the outside. Where we are, and how we treat one another, and who we really are before God, and who we really are when nobody's watching. These are the things that matter to God. These are the things that matters to God. And God, God is sparing us the revival anointing. He's sparing us, believe me. He's sparing us. But he's also preparing us. You know what I'm saying? Every time I listen to R.T. Kendall, I think I'm having a psychological breakdown. <laughs> Every time... He's talking about the midnight cry and getting ready. I'm going, and, and this message is, is not just spiritual. It's playing with my mind. It, it's beginning to make me think in different patterns. It's beginning to make me judge things in the light of different things. It's beginning to, to make me take stock of my life, take stock of other things, of other situations. Measurements are changing in the way that I'm measuring things. Toleration levels are changing. Confrontation levels of the spirit in my life are increasing. And I'm thinking to myself, I believe this. I believe this. I believe this. I, I almost wish I could go, I'm not saying I'm awake, but I almost wish I, could go to, almost wish I could go to deeper stages of sleep that I was in. You're walking around, people, you're thinking it's all right, God is on the move, God's doing good things, this is happening, that, oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and walking around in a sleepwalk, and then God starts to begin an awakening. And you begin to get disturbed. And you begin to look at things and see them as they are and not as you were dreaming them to be. And you begin to look at yourself in the mirror and you begin to see that things weren't quite as well as you thought they were because now you're looking at a different standard. It's like you've been praying, playing Sunday league pub football and suddenly someone's stuck you in, well, who's, who's top of the league right now? <laughs> Someone stuck you in the Liverpool squad and said, how do you feel? And you can't even get the ball and you're out of breath. But when you're playing in the Sunday league football team, You'd have a couple of pints before you went out, way. And you'd just be kicking the ball and look at me, look at me. Now God begins to put you in a different league. Begins to speak to you about a different league. And you realize that when you talk about people like Jonathan Edwards and Smith Wigglesworth and these people, you're not in their league. You're nowhere near them. You, you couldn't play in their team. 
You're not, you're not in their league, but God wants you to be. When you think of the martyrs and the persecuted church and what people have sacrificed, not, not out of religion, but out of spirit and freedom and liberty, and you realize you're falling short of what God wants you to be, and you're just cruising along. Glory to God. And there's a cleansing work that's going on in these days. There's a cleansing work. There's a purifying work. There's a refining work going on. And it's powerful and it's deep. And it's refining. It hurts. And it brings pain. And it opens eyes so that you can see what God is doing. Why? Because God is preparing a people. I say, Holy Spirit, help me. But do it in a gentle way. Help me. Help me. Help me see. Help me grow. Help me be part of this. I don't care if I don't lead it. I don't want to lead it. We all want to be lead. We don't, you don't want to lead what's coming. You want to be praying in the back room, supporting those that are leading. Trust me. You don't want to be at the forefront of this. Yes, I do. Flesh. No, you don't. Because of, what you, of the cost. Cost. That's going to come. But you know what? This is good. This isn't a discouraging, disappointing message. Because the Lord shall send the rod and the strength out of Zion. And listen to this. This is so wonderful. Rule in the midst of your enemies. There are enemies all around. Enemies of the gospel. Darkness covering the land. Covering the land. The church has never been so weak in 200 years in this nation. Yet we think we're so strong. Never been so weak. Where is the power? Where is the power? God is saying, I am going to release anointing levels. I'm going to release power. And in the midst of the enemies... And the midst of the darkness, you're going to begin to rule. Rule in the midst. In other words, in the midst of great darkness, in the midst of great sin, in the midst of great backslide and apostasy, in the midst of these things, in the middle of it, there's going to arise a people salted with the fire of God. They're going to rise in the middle. They're not going to come from out of the right. They're not going to come from out of the left. They're going to arise in the middle of the enemies. And the enemy, you know, the devil's nearly got to the place. You, someone once said, it's true. Give the devil enough rope and he'll hang himself. He's been pulling on that rope for decades. And sometimes the devil lets him build. God lets the devil build and build and build so that there's more glory to his name when he brings down that house. It's true. Rule in the midst of your enemies. We're in darkness, we're in trouble, we're in difficulty. We find oppression and pressure at many different levels, personal levels, family levels, marriage, whatever level it might be, kids, self, church, national church, pressure, pressure, the enemy is pressuring, changing laws, changing uh, moral views, 
Changing marriage. Changing, change. Pressure, pressure. He's not giving up. Pressure, more, more, more. He, he, he doesn't draw a line. He just keeps trespassing. The devil is a trespasser. And he's trespassed and taken ground. But in the middle of this, and you know, it's not going to be the great ones. It's not going to be the politicians. It's not going to be the soccer stars. It's not going to be the great media singers. It's not going to be the rich, but it's going to be the poor, the marginalized. It's going to be the broken hearted. God is going to heal their broken hearted and then send them out to rule in the midst of the enemies. He's going to take the blind and he's going to cause them to see. He's going to bind the wounded. He's, the gospel is going to the poor and the little people that this world thinks very little of. God is going to arise an army of weak, insignificant, ostracized, broken people. And he's going to save them, restore them, and fill him and send them out in the midst of the enemies. So that no man may boast. And the weak things of this world. How many weak people have we got here today? If you don't think you're weak, God will show you. I mean by his mercy. If you don't think you're weak, God will show you. God will show you how weak you are. If you don't think you're base, if you don't think you're low, God will do it by his mercy. Because that's the only people he's going to use. The gospel was never intended for rich people. The gospel was never intended for famous people. Look at that. Yes, the devil's a liar. What the world exalts and prizes, God dismisses and despises. And what the world dismisses and despises, God prizes. Jesus came to preach the gospel to the poor. You say I'm rich and I got into the kingdom of heaven. My God, what a surprise. You better get on your face in the altar because it's a double miracle that you got in, my friend. Because normally the Lord leaves the riches, riches to their own riches. Woe to you if you're rich. Woe to you if you have money. Woe to you if you're famous. Woe to you if you have power in this world. You better get at the front of the queue of humiliation. If you want a place in the kingdom of God, I'm telling you, if a rich man gets into the kingdom of heaven, it's a double grace because you shouldn't be there because the gospel is for the poor only. Does that offend you? Does that offend the rich people? I hope so. I hope so. Too much world in the church. You say, you should prize the rich. You're prizing the poor. Yes, I am. The common, the poor. Those that aren't known, those that are struggling, those that are hiding, those that have never stood on a platform, those that, those that are struggling on their incomes, those that know nothing about God, the single parents, the broken hearts, those that are addicted, and those that are pushed out. Why do you think there was a move of God in Wales last year? The people that are getting saved, nobody had ever heard of and nobody even heard of the place. It's what God does. I'm not saying he doesn't save the rich. But I'm saying, how hard is it for a rich person or a famous person or a person of worldly power, how hard is it for them to enter the kingdom of God? It's like a camel through the eye of the needle. 
That was referring to the gate of the eye of the needle. And what had to happen is you couldn't get through it on a camel. All the poor people just walked through. But the rich people, if they were on a camel, they had to dismount. We have a phrase in England, uh, English language, this, you have to get off your high horse. And it's difficult for someone to get off their high horse. It is hard when you've got all that power, all that influence, when you're club class, when you're premium class, when you don't have to queue for hours where somebody else is, you just jump the queue. When you don't have to sit in the National Health Service thing for hours and hours, you just press your booper number and you're there. None of these things are wrong. Hear what I'm hitting at. I'm, not, I'm hitting at a spirit. That's what I'm hitting at. So you have to take this prophetically, understand what I'm saying. Now, look, how's God going to do this? Verse 3, your people shall be volunteers or willing in the day of your power. We saw in um, Hebrews that Jesus is waiting. He's seated waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. And, and how's God going to do it? Through us. Your rod of your strength will come out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers on the day of your power. Now, what is the power of God? In its most concentrated, potent form, what is the power of God? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. You say, oh, it's, it's, it's the outpouring of the Spirit. It's the gospel. If you want pure power, pure power, power that can change a nation, the purest, most potent manifestation of God's power is the gospel preached and the gospel witnessed. It, there is nothing more powerful on earth than that. You say the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that gives the power to the gospel. Time and time again. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the... He says, I came to you with Christ preaching the cross. Why? Because it's the power of God for all who believe. It is the most powerful thing on planet earth. The preached gospel, the shared gospel has power to literally transfer somebody from the eternal kingdom of darkness to the eternal kingdom of light. It has power, a preached gospel, a shared gospel, has power to come into a dead spirit, you are dead in your sins and trespasses, and cause you to come alive forever. You must be born again. And it's the gospel power that causes you to do that. The people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. You might as well say the people will be your volunteers or your people will be willing in the day of your gospel. I believe that the gospel has been hidden under a, under a bushel for so long. It's been hidden. But we are a city on a hill. We're just going to let the gospel out. 
Why did Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Why didn't he just say, I'm proud of the gospel? Why did he do it in a negative way? Why did Paul just say, I am proud of the gospel? Because it's the power of salvation to all who believe. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because that's what was happening in the church. People were ashamed, embarrassed, fearful of sharing the gospel because they thought nobody will take any notice of it. This old-fashioned Christ that dies on the cross, the blood that appeases the wrath of God that's so manifest in Britain and Europe today, blood appeasing an angry God, Jesus dying on a cross, God sending his son, these things in a culture that's so sophisticated, a culture with so many religions and so many gods and so many theories and, and, and that, have, that thinks it's dismissed the scriptures. And we're going to share this, this ancient story of God sending his son, born of a virgin, living under the law to redeem us from the law, dying bloodily, battered on a cross for your sin and the sins of the world. And on the third day, he rises again. And then he ascends into heaven to sit on a throne and waits for his enemies to be put under his feet. Does that have power? That's those facts, that story. Does that story have power? That simple story that I've told you, does it have power to change a life? Does it have power to save from hell? Can, it, can that simple story release power to change a nation? has before we don't know what we've got but when we begin to use it we're going to see it you know the Salvation Army knew what they got I love their symbols last night and I was just relaxing and thinking I thought what two symbols would you use to sum up the gospel what two symbols and I'm not saying these are the best symbols but this is what I thought I thought blood and fire blood and fire. This is our religion. It's a religion of blood. Blood shed on a cross to expiate, propitiate, and taketh away the sins of the world. Blood that atones. Blood that is as fresh today in its power as it was 2,000 years ago. And fire. Fire. The fire of the Holy Spirit. The fire of the message burning. The fire of God purging. The fire of God's presence. Blood and fire. Salvation Army knew that. Glory to God. Blood and fire. That was their motto. And when they had a magazine, they didn't call it the Church Times or Renewal or Charisma or Revival Times. What should we call it? We'll call it the war cry. A war cry. Blood, fire, and a war cry. I was watching one of these episodes of Great British Train Journeys or whatever it was. And they came to this town and they were in, and it was a place of, of many, many different pubs. It had more pubs in there than any other town had before. And so Michael Portillo is sitting in a pub and this bloke turned up, sitting there, and he's going, oh, here we are in a pub. And he says, yes, 
but uh, there was a great battle out here in the mid to late 1800s. He said, what, what was that? He said, he said, well, the Salvation Army came here and they would be coming into the pubs and shouting, put down your beer or you'll go to hell. He says, he says they, weren't, they weren't as benign as they are now. And there was a big clash because of the Salvation Army. You know, they call themselves an army, blood and fire, war cry. I'll tell you what, we need a bit of that today. You know what I'm saying? Maybe we should all join up, get our uniforms. And then, in return, the breweries didn't like it because they were sh shutting down pubs. Because at that time, it wasn't just somebody who was having a little glass of wine with their meal. People were drunk in the street. P people were getting their, getting their wages each day and before the food got into the mouth of the child, the gin had got into the mouth of the mother or the father. I mean, th this, this was not, you know... Um, Sherry with the vicar, this was absolute domination by alcohol. That's why in some of these early Pentecostal churches like Elim, Elim, it wasn't, there was no such thing as just having a glass of wine. People were drunkards or they weren't. And many of these people that joined the Salvation Army, they were a rough lot. They weren't all educated like their, their leader. They were a rough lot because the Salvation Army was going to the rough lot. They weren't going to the universities. They weren't going to the Bible colleges. They were going to the poor, the despised, the marginalized, the forgotten, the sin-ridden. And they were saving them. And guess what? They were joining up. So they were, they were getting some of the hardest people from society in the Salvation Army. So these men and women that had got radically saved and had been absolutely nothing, just on scrap heap, addicted to drugs, violence, all these things, suddenly had got saved, put on the uniform, and they weren't going to tiptoe around the places that had caused their lives to fall apart. And so uh, William Booth, he could, he could hardly handle them. They, they weren't going to knock on a door. Would you like a copy of the war cry? They went into the pub in advanced mobilization with a battle cry and confronted people there and then. And that's why the breweries hired what they called the skeleton army to go and beat them up. And some of these Salvation Army, you know, they'd only just got saved. Some of them were boxers. And so in these early days, sometimes, you know, they were radically saved, but you punch me again and I'm going to knock your lights out. Well, hey, they just got saved. Give them time. And so it was a holy mess of radically saved from, from, from oh, glory to God. I'm just saying that to encourage you, blood and fire and a war cry. How offensive. Blood, fire, and a good old-fashioned war cry. Those days are coming back. So, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauty of holiness, in the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. Oh, it's beautiful. Poetry. Willing people. A willing people. God's working willingness in us. In the day of power. The beauty of holiness. And the womb of the morning. Dew of our youth. God is going to bring a new generation. Like the Jew. You ever walked out 
in a field in the morning, just, and you just see the dew glistening on the field. That's what God's people are going to be like. And then uh, finally, going back to Hebrews chapter 10, 13. Verse 12, Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies were made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are set apart. You see, we're linked to what God wants to do. Let me explain. Never, let, let's, just, let, let's just look at 1 Corinthians 15, 25. Because when it says every enemy, you know, that means every enemy. When Jesus returns, he's not coming back to a church that's just hanging on. That's not every enemy, is it? Michael Eaton said this, who recently ministered with us, and I thought, wow, I never saw that. He said that everything is going to be fulfilled. Where it says, make disciples of all nations, that's going to be fulfilled. In other words, all nations are going to be being discipled. Imagine discipling a whole nation. Imagine France being discipled. No, not some people in France, France being discipled. Imagine Spain being discipled. Imagine that. Imagine Egypt being discipled. Imagine Britain being discipled. No, not some people. Britain being discipled. Make disciples of all nations. That's going to be fulfilled. The devil is going to be destroyed. All these things. I'm not saying there's not going to be persecution, everything that comes with the revival. We know that. We've been around the block. But there's going to come a time. And Jesus is not going to return until this time. Think about that. So you're worried about false religion. Well, they come and go. You're worried about false religion. Jesus is not going to come back until the enemy of false religion is put under his feet. That's what he's waiting for. He's not going to come back. That's what we've been reading. He's waiting, Hebrews says, until his enemies are made his footstool. He's not going to come back when they're at the top of their game. When he comes back, they're going to be laid Low. I'm not saying the whole world is going to be Christian, anything like that. But what I'm saying is the enemies, they'll be, they'll be beaten. And then he's going to come and return. And with all these different enemies we could name that are going to be brought low by the gospel and the power of God. In 1 Corinthians 15 and 25, we find the last enemy that is going to be put under his feet before Jesus comes. Many enemies are going to be under his feet. But what is the last final enemy to be put under the feet of the seated Christ before he returns? Well, here we are. Well, okay, here we go. Verse 25. Uh, well, verse 24. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign, here we go, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy 
that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. But look at that. The last enemy. He must reign till he's put all his enemies in. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Every other enemy will be destroyed, and then the last one's going to be death. Well, that makes perfect sense. Because when the angel blows the trumpet of the second coming, what happens just before Jesus returns? The dead in Christ rise. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The trumpet sounds... And the last thing that happens, the remaining enemy just before Jesus returns is this. The dead in Christ come out. It's the first resurrection. Come out of their tombs. The resurrected believers come out of their tombs. Death has been defeated. They are glorified. They're going up into the air. Death's been defeated. We who are alive at that moment, we're raptured with them. And we go to greet, the word is greet, meet the Lord in the air. And as he sees the last enemy being destroyed, as Jesus seated, waiting, as he sees his church, believers, Old Testament, New Testament, as they begin to shoot out of those graves, and as the living church joins them, and they begin to come up, Jesus steps up, gets on his white horse, and comes down. All things have been put under his feet. These are glorious days. If only we can keep in the spirit. Keep in the spirit and, and keep in this sort of stuff. And understand that God is shaking and stirring and preparing. I'm going to rule in the midst of his enemies. And this, ver this, this, this really summarizes everything I've spoken about so far on priests of all believers. It's all in the context of Melchizedek, isn't it? All in the context of his priestly ministry and our priestly ministry. Let's just stand together.